Welcome back, everyone. We are your host, Jose Sanchez. And Jen Tosley. And this is episode 82 of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. In this episode, we have professors Amber Crucius and Alana Friedman, who is a returning member of the Criminology Academy from episode 14. We are going to discuss going through the PhD program and get their thoughts and advice on how to successfully navigate and thrive in grad school. Amber Crucius received her PhD in Criminology and Criminal Justice from the University of Nebraska at Omaha and her BA in Psychology with a minor in Criminal Justice from the University of Wisconsin. Her dissertation, Examining Theoretical Correlates of Personal Recurrent Victimization in Adulthood, explored how several victimological theories differentiated victims of recurrent victimization from non-victims and those who experience single victimization. Her research interests include pathways to offending and victimization, victimology, corrections, at-risk youth, and program and policy evaluation. She has published in Journal of Interpersonal Violence, Race and Justice, Journal of Child and Adolescent Trauma, Victims and Offenders, and Child and Youth Services. Professor Alana Friedman received her PhD in sociology from the University of Texas at Austin, a JD from St. Louis University School of Law, and an MA awarded with distinction from St. Louis University. She brings expertise in civil rights and criminal defense litigation to questions at the intersection of law and society. In her research, Professor Friedman studies the occupation of American policing and analyzes legal professionals' discretionary decision-making practices. Her dissertation, The Rarity of Police Prosecution, Prosecutors, the Law, and Police Misconduct, draws on in-depth interviews with civilians and legal professionals working in the domain of police suspect investigations and prosecutions to better understand the legal processes alongside the organizational structures involved with the investigation and prosecution of police misconduct. So for today's episode, now since Jen just recently completed the program and is starting her new job as an assistant professor, and I'm towards the tail end of the program here at CU Boulder, we thought it'd be good to bring Ilana and Amber to discuss not just surviving grad school, but actually thriving throughout grad school, sort of discuss our journeys through the program and give some advice to people who are starting in the middle or at the end of the program. So with that being said, let's bring Amber and Alana in. Right. Hi, Amber. Hi, Alana. Thank you for joining us today. We're excited to speak with the two of you. Thanks for having us. Okay. So this episode and, you know, the title is going to give it away for people who haven't actually listened to it yet. But it's about thriving, not surviving the PhD program. And now that you both had a little bit of time to you know, reflect on grad school, you both are starting new jobs as assistant professors. So maybe you've had some time. How would you summarize your graduate school experience? I would classify it as ultimately a successful roller coaster. I think there's a lot of highs and lows during grad school. But sort of looking back on the journey collectively, I'd say I learned a lot and was ultimately successful in meeting my goal, getting a job. And I'd also say that I'm really grateful for my experience. Taking collectively, again, I had a really wonderful experience at UT, and I'm really, really thankful for the folks that I met and for my advisors sharing their expertise and their advice along the way. I made some really good friends actually across the country throughout you know, selecting a PhD program and meeting folks in the program at UT. So yeah, I would say it was successful, but still there were some market highs and market lows as well that kind of go along with it. That sounds like my experience as well. I had a really incredible graduate experience and I feel almost like that's not something you should say. We were just talking about PTSD after grad school and I think that's more of the normal people's experience, but it's true and I really hope that starts to become the norm where people have really positive experiences. I just dove into my coursework right away. And once that I felt confident about that, I moved into, you know, research opportunities and then built onto that and made community partnerships. And then I started teaching. So I really just went through the phases of student and then ABD and finishing my dissertation. I also had some of the lowest times of my life, as Alana said, I worked nearly 365 days a year for at least the first three years. But in the end, it got me to where I want to be. So I agree with Alana in saying I have nothing but gratitude. 
That's awesome and great to hear because, you know, Amber, you mentioned you don't always hear that. And right, I was nervous to say that. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I mean, I think I also had a really wonderful experience in grad school. Obviously, plenty of lows as well, but that's just par for the course, I think. So it's great to hear that both of you have had or did have really great experiences. All right, so let's kind of break this up into the stages of the PhD program. Going through a doc program is kind of a slow burn. And oftentimes it feels like the achievements that we achieve along the way are like non-climatic. You do Mm -hmm. something, it's just like, oh, it's done. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the next thing. Jose and I were talking and we think that the advice we would give to people kind of depends on where they're at in the program. And so let's start at the beginning and just what advice would the two of you give someone who is just starting their program years one and two in coursework? I would say just dive in as much as possible. You know, ask the questions, take classes, take workshops, apply for funding, meet faculty and staff, really like put yourself out there and embrace yourself in the culture and the department. I think showing up and again, just really diving into it and like taking on opportunities, but not saying yes to everything. That's a really hard balance. Just showing up and like really making it almost part of who you are, really dive in. Yeah, I think that's important. I think what I tried to do in my first couple years of the program was to treat the program like a job, actually. And what I mean by this is two things. First of all, finding a work schedule that works for you. So time management for me became really key and delineating space was important for me. I kept my work at work. And then that changed during the pandemic, obviously, where that was not a thing. And it actually was quite challenging because of not having those spaces separate. Because maintaining healthy boundaries with your coursework was actually really important for me. I could do this 365 days of the year, and that was not good for me mentally. So I needed to kind of separate spaces and start to treat it more as a job and then have like a work or a life outside of it, which brings me to my second point, which is don't lose sight of those other things outside of your program that make you happy and make you fulfilled. That was key for me as well. Finding something that you love as an outlet and doing that thing every day, even if it's just for 15 minutes, like some of us have other obligations, whether it's family and kids and things like that. So it's doing things that had mental outlets for me. So whether it's watching Netflix or playing with your kids or going on runs or joining a book club or something like that, it became really important in those first two years and realizing that it's not cheating to do reading that's not for your (laughs) courses. That was actually really, really crucial because I kind of lost sight of that. I treated it as cheating and that I should only be reading for classes. And that's really bad for your brain. So just don't lose sight of those other things that give you joy in life, particularly when it feels like you should be doing so much even in the first couple of years. Yeah, I think that's good. I don't think I've read a book for fun in like six years. If I'm being no, honest. yeah, same. <laughs> this is some other advice that I received from my advisor because I did the same thing for the first like four years of my program. And especially for qualitative researchers, reading other kinds of work and fiction and even like romance novels is really good for narrative development. It's really good at trying to get you to tell a story and having that, you know, kind of narrative that's building throughout or an arc or something like that, it can be really, really helpful. And so that because I felt the same way that I was not reading for pleasure. And it was a huge hole in my life. And my advisor was like, No, 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 this is great. Like, you should be able to read for narrative development or whatever it is for your own work. So and I think even outside of qualitative work, I think a lot of our work is telling a story, even if it just includes numbers. So I feel like that applies. That's good advice. I'll take that. (laughs) And then I think learning to say no pretty early on is also very important. Like I know that's something, at least from my experience, that I don't typically see until students hit like years three or four, where they kind of finally find it within themselves to say no. Like I know for me, it it actually happened not even through like self-development is because I ended up having a kid. And at that point, I was like, yeah, I I can't do that project. I'm not going to pass on it because... Like I am stretched super thin right now. So I think learning to say no, like early is very important because, you know, especially with year one, it can be such an overwhelming experience. You know, like you're going through, like, like we just had our orientation for our first years and it's like three days, like back to back to back of just like orientations. And then 
when I came in, we had to do like a teaching intensive, which was like a week long thing. And then you get thrown into like, okay, now the semester started time to start taking grad classes and start TAing. Like at CU, we had, we have recitations. I didn't know what that was. I came from a pretty small school. So like recitations were not a thing. Uh, right. So year one can be very overwhelming. So I typically tell students that I talk to that are coming in, like just focus on being a TA, focus on your own classes. And that's kind of it. You know, like yeah. after year one, you're going to have, you have plenty of time to you know, worry about other things. Like year one, just kind of, you know, like Amber said, just acclimate yourself to your department and the culture within the department and kind of figuring it out. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. I think that is great advice and something that needs to be spoken about more. Like as a student, it feels like you almost can't say no sometimes, but you're doing an injustice to yourself and you're the people you're working with. If you are spread too thin, it's a really good skill. One I still need to learn. Yeah. Said yes to pretty much everything until <laughs> my advisor was like, no, you're going to say no. <laughs> say no, even if it's to me. And that Amber goes back to you saying you were working 365 days a year. That's basically what I was doing too. And then I'd see Alana's social media where you're out doing all sorts of fun <laughs> things. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> you're fantastic at the work-life work balance thing and everyone can learn from you there. But I think that maybe I just have an attention span that gets limited in some ways and I need to do other things and my brain wanders, but yeah. maybe it's that. All right. So let's kind of go forward to the end of year two or year three, depending on your program. People are normally wrapping up their coursework around this time, moving either into comprehensive exams or qualifying papers, which... Alana, we've spoken to you about way back in episode 14. So what advice would you give to someone who's already passed their coursework and getting into these other aspects of the program? Okay, I think one of the things is to stay focused on the overall purpose of these things. So I can only speak for my experience at UT, but they were, you know, comps and these qualifying papers were were sort of about learning the literature and demonstrating that we've thought about it. In many ways, they were the functional equivalent of a hurdle that we sort of needed to overcome. So I think it's important to stay conscious of their purpose and how and mindful of just how it can be useful for you. And so if it means learning the intricacies of a case of a research method like that you can use in the future, that's great. If it meant forming the basis of the lit review for your dissertation prospectus, that's also great. And it should also be useful in that capacity. So not letting it be, not letting those exams or those papers be an exercise in futility, I think is really important. Staying conscious of how it can help you in the future. And I think this actually, this stage was the stage where professionalization and scheduling and time management became crucial for me I and mean, really kicked in because... In the first couple of years, I was doing work on the weekends. I had to do work on the weekends. You know, I had to do readings for the week in advance, you know, coming up for classes. So I was prepared. But after comps, I was able to transition into a more traditional Monday through Friday, nine to five schedule and not working on the weekend and taking that time to do things for me and to be with my family and my friends. And that way I was rejuvenated come the work week. So that's where, you know, we, I think it's really good to sort of frame the PhD program as chunking it up because that does help you get good at certain things and you can translate those skills into other start parts of the program, but you might have to readjust your schedule or what that looks like for you based off of different stages in the program as well. So remaining mindful of that too is helpful. That's excellent. I remember getting to the comps and everyone does it different every school, but we just had two big exams six months apart. And I remember getting to that stage and I was like, I know nothing. I have to start over. And it's like, you just <laughs> took eight years of courses. Like you do know things and use what you know, apply what you know, even if it's not the material, you know how to study at this point, you know how to, you know, articulate what you want to say. Another thing I want to say is that this is the time where I really, I've always like, applied discipline, but this was the time that I really had to be disciplined. Like no one was, things weren't due every week. It was just six months of studying where you had to set your own deadlines. You had to say, okay, for 30 hours a week, I need to sit down and read this literature. Even if it's the area I never wanted to read or anything like that. So it really can be daunting and exhausting, but just keep that end goal in mind. That's kind of like what helped me get through. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. I've heard from other mentors and advisors that 
between comps and when you defend your prospectus, that might look a little bit different based on the program and based on the person. But that's the stage where a lot of folks drop off and there's like this huge lull. And so just keeping the ball rolling and getting things in the pipeline and keeping the output up is really crucial at that stage. And even if you do fall into that kind of lull, just remain mindful that it's a thing. So hopefully you can combat it and be proactive. Because I have heard that that's where a lot of folks really drop off within programs. And they're like, well, you know, I did my master's, I I got my comps, like, maybe I don't need the the full, you know, PhD. You do, you can do it, just keep it going, get to that prospectus. And then you can get into court, or you can get into field work. And it's great for that. But just keep going, keep that ball going. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So then after comps, qualifying papers, you know, we're starting to move into that lull phase, which for me was very real. So thank you for bringing that back to me. (laughs) But you get into the prospectus and then the dissertation and job market. So there's a lot of things happening really towards the end of the program, whether that's for academic or non-academic jobs. What advice would you give to people who are at the end of their program? I would say now is the time to think about what you have done throughout all this time as a student and think about where you want to go with that. So for me, when I was on the job market, I wanted to be really intentional and not just like get a job. Like I had put years and years into this education and I really wanted to kind of guide my future. And that's, of course, you're not stuck anywhere. But if you can be intentional about the kind of work you want to do, I think it can be really beneficial. I feel like grad school sometimes is you're doing work that the department like your advisor is doing or projects under this or grants and things that are funded, where this is really a time where you can like plan your future and your research agenda and things. And if you're intentional about it, I think it's really beneficial. Yeah, I'd say that this latter stage of the program is absolutely where I struggled the most and had honestly, the most apathy about the PhD program in general, that could be a consequence of the pandemic and just the world literally and figuratively being on fire. But also, I'd say at this point, I felt the most pressure to succeed, to get a job, to write a dissertation, to finish up fieldwork. I mean, there are so many... The questions are different and more in my estimation that I just felt an incredible amount of pressure and I felt really alone in the process and like I wasn't succeeding and I was unmotivated. And and so my advice for the stage, if you haven't already, get a therapist <laughs> because you have to be able to talk about these things and it can be somewhat with your advisors, right? Like you can share some of these things with your advisors, but an outsider's perspective and a professional's perspective is really important at this stage. And so if you don't have a therapist already throughout your PhD program, you should definitely get one at this stage because this is where the real roller coasters start to kick in where you're you've been submitting to journals and you get rejections or you're submitting to grants and you get rejections or you know you are submitting to jobs and you get literally ghosted like all of those negative things really come to the fore in this part of the program and they're much more visceral and that just takes a toll over time. I mean, there's wins, right? Like you get flyouts, you get job offers, you get paper acceptances, but those sometimes don't feel as good as the low of the rejection feels. And so I think that it's just, it can be very unmooring at this stage. So having someone to bounce ideas off of or feelings or emotions is really, really helpful at this stage. I think that's great advice. And I just want to say too, I think people, if you're in a PhD program, you're probably used to like excelling. And maybe this is the first time in your life where you are getting rejection after rejection. And I think that's hard for a lot of people too. So you're not alone in being like, (laughs) and kind of getting used to that world of rejection. Yeah. I would say it's also nice if you have someone that's been through it that you can talk to. Like, no, I'm fortunate enough that Jen is a year ahead of me. So she and I have had a lot of conversations. You know, unfortunately, she uh, kind of had to take the brunt of doing all these things. And, you know, I'm like, now I'm the beneficiary of, you know, the, <laughs> the insights that she's gained. But but now I'm, I'm the tail end of the program, right? Like, I have my dissertation. And it can, it's pretty overwhelming. Sometimes I feel like I like turn on my computer and all like all these documents open like like my potential job application spreadsheet where like all the jobs are listed once my dissertation my powerpoints for the class that i have to teach and i gotta like sit down have like see like all these screens pop up and i'll just like immediately get up and just walk away i'm like mm-hmm. i think i need to go mow the lawn you know <laughs> like those weeds aren't yeah. gonna pull themselves out right like 
I think. And so, you know, something that I've done is like it's for my dissertation, like I have my dissertation document, but I decided to just start writing each chapter in an individual work document, mm-hmm. just because every time that I opened up my dissertation document and saw like a hundred something pages or whatever, or like, you know, like 20,000 words. I don't want to do this anymore. Like at mm-hmm. this, like, and like looking at the table of contents and seeing like all these chapters that still need to be like edited and written. And so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to write one chapter in an individual document. And when it's all done, I'll bring it all together. Not worried about the formatting and all that stuff at that point. Cause it's very overwhelming. And then, you know, having to sift through all these like job market materials and like what has to go where, make sure that you're not submitting, you know, a letter with the wrong name to the wrong school. <laughs> yeah. So I think just find like a way to organize everything I think is, is helpful. Like I, like I've always been like a pretty kind of just, I'm going to wing it kind of person, but that seems to not be as effective in the end game. So I've have to kind of really re like tweak the way that I do things and actually be a little more structured a little more like organized with my time because yeah like you know once I was done with classes once I was done with my comps my papers like now I've like stepped into this like vast field where I'm just like okay so what do I do now like I know I have to finish a dissertation like that's it like it's all like I'm just kind of wandering around trying to figure this out so having someone to talk to and then I think that's hopefully be the benefit of this episode is we're going to be the people they can talk to about these things. And yeah. I think just being able to, like Jen was just a year ahead of you and she was another student. There's like something to say about we're in this together, but I can learn from you. Some things you just can't say, or you feel like you can't say to faculty members or people who are like chairs or things like that. So that's really, really helpful. Just having someone who is like more of a peer to guide you as well. Yep. And there's so many hidden pieces of knowledge about these processes, whether it's how you write a dissertation. I mean, yeah, like absolutely don't write your dissertation in one document, like split it up by chapters. Yeah, like these things are hidden or like, what do I wear to a fly out? Like, I didn't, do I have to wear a suit? Yeah. Like, I don't know the answers to these questions. You know, there's so many different questions. Again, it depends on the stage. But I'm mindful of the fact too, that like, for first gen students and students of color, like this is a hidden universe, for a lot of those folks too. And so, you know, I have an immense amount of privilege and I still had so many questions. And so it's just remaining mindful that there's even more barriers to these answers for other folks that have, that this is like a total, this is Mars for them. And I think that like sharing this, these kinds of pieces of information, even informal pieces of information amongst your friends who are now your colleagues and who will go through the battle with you. Like it's really, really helpful to have those resources because those are really important pieces of knowledge and really important questions. So keep asking them and feel free. Like you should have the freedom to go pick weeds if if that's what you need to do. Like I wrote my dissertation while I was training for a marathon. And I think while I was like running, I was like thinking through these ideas in my head. Like I tried to get them out of my head when I would go for a run, but I couldn't at that point because I was crunched for time. So feel free to pick your weeds because an idea might pop up and it'll be great. All right. So we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but something that we all seem to struggle with, especially, at, you know, as we discussed towards the beginning and even during dissertation phase of the program is work-life balance. And so Lana, you've talked about this a little bit, Amber, you too, but were either of you, do either of you feel like you've cracked this code and, you know, how did you do it? No, but it sounds like Alana has. No, no. Jen's giving me a skeptical look. I think that I just pulled, yeah, no, I don't think I have. I don't believe um, you. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I think this is well, partially, so I have to work out every day. That's just something in my head. I think that's partially a product of me being a student athlete in college where it was just literally in my schedule every day that I did it. It's also a huge emotional outfit outlet for me. My partner says I'm nicer when I work out every day. So (laughs) it's probably for their benefit as well. But no, I mean, I think like, I just have to do something that is different than be having my head in a book every single day. And some days it's just walking the dogs, right? Like some days it might be watching an episode on Netflix or playing with your kids. Like I just think that I have to take a break mentally. And so finding what you're passionate about and making a dedicated effort to do those things. And I think it, again, relates to delineating space. Like I have to have that disconnect. And so again, like the pandemic, there's certain things that will pop up. Hopefully we won't go through that again. But 
where it can be made very difficult to disconnect. But hopefully you can find that thing that's really good for you, whether it's cooking a good meal or whatever it is. I am a huge advocate of that. So I'm still learning. (laughs) My boyfriend's like, put the phone down. It's midnight. You don't have to reply to that student. And I need those reminders. I don't know. It's just in me. I don't know. But I will say that I listen to my body. So if I need a night off, I'm taking the night off because I'm not going to be productive. I'm not. I really have gotten good at like listening to myself. I have fun still and I had fun throughout the grad school. I never missed a wedding. I never missed, you know, a nephew's birthday or anything. I was able to still prioritize friends and family. I just like really hit it hard when I wasn't doing those things. See, so you had a work-life balance. It just looked different. It just looked than different. Than other yeah. people. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dig back into grad school then. And you know, it's about a whole lot more than just coursework and completing program requirements, which is a lot of what we've talked about so far. For a lot of us, it involves working with professors on research projects, conducting our own research, you know, publishing papers, teaching undergrad or sometimes master's courses, elements of service like reviewing manuscripts, being on graduate committees and so on. Both of you have obtained jobs. So clearly, we know that you excelled in all of the different aspects of grad school, including these other elements. How did you manage to balance it all? I would say just plan and prioritize. So everyone has their like sweet spot of like, I've heard some people be like, I only do coursework Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays are my research day. I kind of like tackle the most immediate commitment and I do set aside time for like certain commitments throughout the week, but every week I just like plan my week. And then I have like specific goals. Like I teach every Tuesday, Thursday, I better be prepared. But I also have like what I call dark gray goals and that's more research-based. So they're dark gray because it's not black and white. I don't get fired or I don't miss a deadline if I don't meet them, but they're still there to like keep me on track. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I probably didn't do this as well as me taking time off and going for a run, which I do very well. But I think there's two things. And the first of which is I worked very candidly and openly with advisors and faculty throughout my department on understanding what their expectations were for me and going off of that. So our program requires that UTA, if you aren't funded elsewhere, like externally, or you're not RAing, that you TA and you have to be in person for that. And that made traveling for field work very difficult. And so I had very open and honest conversations with the professors that I was TAing for about, you know, my travel schedule on the weekends, if I needed to go to a field site to conduct research that, hey, I'm going to be leaving right after class on Thursdays and Fridays, I'm not going to be in the office. So if you need to talk with me, you know, like, let's do it right after class or whatever it is, Um, just very openly and honestly. And that was helpful also on the job market. When I would tell them, hey, like I'm going on the job market, that might be that might mean impromptu flyouts, right? And I'll keep you updated. Nothing about the course is going to slip through, but just want to let you know, like I might be grading in an airport or something like that. Like I want to just let you know about that. The second thing is I think you have to be good at planning. And this goes again to what Amber was saying, charting out what each week or what each month and what each semester looks like and having goals based off of that was really important for me. So what days of the week or what hours of the day are my restricted writing blocks? Like when are meetings not allowed during that time? Because I'll schedule meetings to the high heavens if that means I have to avoid writing. But chunking in my sca- in my calendar, in my schedule, those times that are restricted, that can't be infringed upon was important. You know, another question like, do I want to have this paper out by the end of the semester? Or what do I want this paper to look like by the end of the month? Thinking through those kinds of questions and answering them were just really crucial for me. And then relatedly was having calendar invites. So like, if you need me to do something, like I'm going to put something in my calendar about it. So I don't forget that I have a deadline or whatever it is. So those were just some tools that I used throughout that became really, really helpful with planning and making priorities and being clear and open and honest with the folks, you know, that were depending on me for different things. My calendar saves me. So I understand that. Um, If it wasn't for that, I would get nothing done ever. Or I wouldn't show up to things either. It reminds me I need to be somewhere. So yeah. yeah. Calendars save lives. Well, we need them with all the commitments and I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And color coding things. It's not not getting done. Yeah. 
(laughs) But one thing I am trying to do this semester, which I've never done before, Alana, is the writing blocks thing. I've never done that. And then I just what you said, I schedule meetings at all times to (laughs) avoid writing. So trying to not do that this year. I think it's just, it depends on the person. If I block out four hours, I will get there and I'll be like, my brain is empty. But like, if I'm randomly like, I have a chunk of time and I'm like, oh, I can write half of a manuscript in a day. So like whatever works for you too. And some people will schedule, you know, like Friday is my writing day. And I know that Fridays are my writing days. And, you know, Monday through Thursday, I might not get that much writing done, but I know Friday is my writing days. Other people do it like, all right, I'm going to write every single day for an hour Mm -hmm. in the morning. Mm -hmm. So there's different approaches. There's different strategies. You kind of just have to figure out what works for you. Yeah. I would say I'm more of a binge writer, but I don't know that I would recommend this. (laughs) Same. Okay. So I'm sure both of you have experienced this or either yourselves have seen this happen with people where now they start maybe dreaming about other things they could be doing instead of grad school. Now, for example, uh, at least for like the first couple of years of the program, you know, at least once a week, I'd be driving home thinking maybe I can go back to LA and beg my boss to give me my old job back, uh, you know, (laughs) or, or I'd like, you know, find these like research analyst positions, like all you need is a master's like, oh, I have a master's. And I'd look at the salary and like, oh, this is so much more than what I'm making now. Right. And Jen, I don't know if you've had this experience. So maybe you have. Yeah. Yours are a lot more practical than mine. Pretty much every <laughs> single day for almost every day of the BHD program. I was like, I'm done. I'm moving somewhere nice. And I'm going to be a scuba dive instructor. Like, that's just <laughs> what I'm going to go do and open a surf shack. So yeah. Did either of you ever find yourselves questioning your life's choices and maybe why you're subjecting yourself to a PhD program? And if you did, you know, how, how did you work through it? Yes. So I read this question and my first response was yes, 1000%. And my second thought in my head was, oh, good. So it's not just me. Yes, absolutely. I thought about this. And I think it's totally normal. And we should talk about it more that people that this is a common sort of thread throughout all grad students. So don't feel like you're alone in questioning why you're doing this or what you're doing. I was pretty open and honest with my advisors. I realized that's not for everyone. A lot of people don't have that relationship with their advisors, but I was open with them and hearing their expertise and their advice. That actually ability to be honest with them allowed me to take a step back and be a little bit more risky with my research and figuring out what I really wanted to do, which was actually a benefit to me in the long run. But I think, you know, you have to remain mindful of what you really want in life throughout the PhD program and being open with yourself and honest with yourself about what you really want. For example, I considered going into the tech industry and doing UX research because as a qualitative methodologist, we have skills that can translate into that industry context. And I realized that my passion was really in teaching and really in research and service to my students and service opportunities more broadly. And, you know, my passion was substantively in sociolegal studies. And so I didn't ultimately pursue that. But I think taking moments of quiet reflection are very helpful. What you want with your life? What do you want your life to look like? How do you want to spend your time? While also considering that you actually have a really broad skill set that you've learned within grad school and not closing doors too soon. So there's a huge pressure, obviously, to get an R1, you know, assistant professorship, but we're actually quite qualified to do a lot of different work. So don't close doors too early and also don't let the stigma of leaving academia get to you either. There's a huge stigma about going into an industry depending on your program. And I think that it's totally cool and it's awesome. And it's great for some folks to leave academia and do something different. So yeah. I think that's really excellent advice just to look at that end goal. Like that was always really important to me. Like I saw myself being in academia for forever and I was like, I know I have to go through these stages to get there. So I think that's really incredible advice. I actually didn't have one of these moments until right before the job market. And then I was like, does any of this matter? Like, does anyone read our manuscripts? Like, does anything, are academics doing anything really? (laughs) And I started talking to people. I got a piece of advice from my advisor, Dr. Teresa Kulig. And she said, talk to people who are at where you want to be. And that's really what like changed the game for me. They basically said, like, you make this career, you make this life like what you want it to be. And we may not be changing the world, but like if you can improve one 
correctional facility programming or if you can improve one victim's experience like then you just have to like put it into perspective or working with students and things like that like we may not be changing the world but we can try yeah that is incredible advice yes yeah i think the discussion with your advisor is pretty good because you know i had one of these moments a few months ago and i had a one-on-one with my advisor and i was like david you know what i don't think i want to do this anymore like I think I want to change my trajectory. And, you know, he, you know, he kind of talked me through it. And I'm sure he sensed that, you know, in my heart of hearts, you know, being an academic is kind of where I was going to end up. But I think the thing I appreciate is gave me advice. He kind of gave me some facts and he let me sort it out on my own. Right. Like he kind of gave me what what he thought I needed to know. And it took me a few weeks to kind of just reflect back and and really kind of figure out, do I really actually want to do this? And I think the one question that I would always ask myself too when I was having these moments was, do I actually need a PhD to do what I want to do? And the answer was always yes. So I was like, all right, let, let's just keep chugging along, right? Because like the moment that the answer becomes no, then I think we need to, you know, maybe reconsider if staying in the program is actually worth it. One hundred percent. I think that's really, really important to remain mindful of is if you need the PhD, and a lot of the times, yeah, you do to do a tour. So yeah. All right. So clearly having an advisor made a world of difference for all four of us. And, you know, you often see horror stories, whether it's on social media or just talking to people who have left their programs or have really become disillusioned with the whole PhD experience because of bad interactions with their advisors or even other faculty in their departments, really. But do you think your choice of advisor has made a huge impact on your graduate school experience? And if so, will you elaborate and then talk a little bit about why you chose your advisor too? 100,000 million percent, yes. My advisors were incredibly supportive, incredibly generous with their mentorship. I really... I mean, for me, I don't see how your advisors can't impact your trajectory throughout the program in either direction. I'm very grateful that I had an incredible experience with advising at UT. Yeah, I just can't say any more positive things about I mean, they were incredible. I selected my advisors in a pretty strategic way. So I selected them through their substantive research interests and their expertise, as well as how we work together and how we clicked interpersonally. And I think that's the latter portion of that was really important for me. So I strategically, like I said, I strategically compiled my team that had sociologists on my team who were then my substantive kind of crime law and deviance broadly research area, as well as folks who were really good qualitative methodologists And I, because of my background in the law, I wanted a lawyer on my committee as well. That was important for me to remain very interdisciplinary in my research project. So I was pretty specific as far as my selection of my advisors. But an important thing that I learned probably about halfway through my PhD program was that it's important to flag anti-mentors as well. So not just the folks that are helping you, but also the folks that are not working well for you. And... It's important to remain mindful, I think, of two things when you're compiling a research team. And the first thing is how people make you feel, as in taking stock of how you feel after a meeting. Are you pumped up by their advice? Are you optimistic? Or do you feel icky and mad or unsupported? And the second thing is how they deliver feedback, because you're going to be getting a lot of feedback from them. (laughs) And so if they're always negative, or if it's a crappy interpersonal dynamic, then that's going to be... And so one of my advisors, one of her rules is don't be stingy with the frosting. If folks are stingy with the frosting and they're not supportive of you, that's something to take stock of. So how you work with people, how they work, does it jive with how you work? Those are all things that are actually really important throughout the PhD program. And also flagging anti-mentors as well is important. That's a really good piece of advice. I've never thought about that. So back to the original question, I think your advisor has the biggest impact. Mine had the biggest impact. I worked with a lot of faculty at UNO. I think there was 10 faculty members that I ended up publishing with. So my research interests are kind of all over the place. And I was really supported by, you know, working with a lot of people. But I always went back to my main advisor, Dr. Kulig. And similar to Lana, I could not have asked for a better mentor, not only with like 
here's how you actually do a literature review and here's training and here's how to do EFA and all those things, but also just for life, for like the job search and like checking in on me. And it was a very well-rounded relationship that I had with her and I couldn't have asked for like better direction and guidance. If you don't have that, I suggest that you find a faculty member that is supportive or even just like an older or a farther along a student. You really need that direction. Like as we've been hinting to, no one knows just how to do these things. No one knows how to navigate through grad school. And without having someone there kind of like show you the ropes, it can be really painful. And I think that can be a deal breaker for a lot of students. I actually came to UNO with graduate assistantship with someone else. It was with Dr. Gaylene Armstrong. And then just due to funding and things like that, I ended up working with Dr. Kulig and it ended up being the most incredible thing. I still have a great relationship with Dr. Armstrong, but Dr. Kulig was a junior faculty and she was publishing like crazy. So that worked out really well for me to just kind of like work with her as she was moving through tenure. So if that does happen to any students, like don't be discouraged. That doesn't mean you know, like you might be moved around and then you can find your people. And I think it's really obvious, at least it was for me in the beginning that like Dr. Kulik was going to be my person. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about through the last couple of questions is, you know, I think the precarity of grad school and sort of how academia operates forces grad students to have these totally understandable thoughts, but thinking that we're crazy, that like, you know, I don't know the answer to these questions and it's just me. And like, what am I really doing here? And maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And I mean, the fact of the matter is when you reach like a certain stage of the program, thinking about moving your family or uprooting your lifestyle, leaving cities where you've kind of been living for a long time and you feel connection to that is really, really, really stressful. And so being able to articulate and to say that to an advisor is just really important. And you kind of don't know it until you get to that point. But being able to humanize yourself and for them to recognize your humanity in sharing that, I think is just fundamental to a relationship. I mean, I was very selective about where I applied on the grad on the job market. And that is contrary to a lot of folks advice, a lot of advisors advice that you should apply broadly and anywhere. And for me, that wasn't feasible. I just didn't want to do that for a whole host of reasons. But the ability to text them and, you know, have questions if you're in an airport or to say like, my flight got canceled. Do I reach out to the chair of the hiring committee? The ability, the flexibility to be that honest and open with an advisor is just really important and it's grounding. And so if you have the ability to do that, that's wonderful and try to cultivate a relationship where you think you can have that kind of relationship. I realize it's not possible perhaps in all circumstances, but hopefully it is. I think we should work as a culture, as an academic community to make sure that students are safe and comfortable in these environments and not being taken advantage of and not being in these precarious states. So that's just something that I think is important to share. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was just the human aspect that she mentioned. Like the first year I was very like, had my tie on going to my meetings with Dr. Kulik, like let's only talk about schoolwork. And then like, as our relationship progressed, it got just more and more comfortable. And I felt more comfortable going to her for all sorts of questions. And that was really fundamental for me. I was just going to say that I feel like I was fortunate to have that kind of mentorship as well. And at first, Amber, like you said, very much like, let's just talk about professional life and you know the job at hand. And then it was like, shit hit the fan in my life. And all of a sudden things were exploding and there was no way that I could hide that anymore. And I was really nervous for like my first conversation that was like about how life was impacting the PhD program with my advisor. But David was just like, I get it. Like life happens. It doesn't pause while you're in grad school. Like we need to be able to talk about this stuff. And, you know, it helps that they've all been in our position and hopefully they recognize that and can understand where we're coming from. We're just humans and we can't hit pause on life for a PhD. And you shouldn't hit pause either. You shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was... So Jen and I both kind of hit a pretty similar trajectory where we both wanted to get out a little earlier, but then life happened and we ended up having to come back for our six years. So, you know, she came back for her six year. I'm currently in my six year. And I remember because, you know, like full time I was telling David, like, I'm, I'm going to be out in five. I'm out in five. I'm out in five. And then I remember having a meeting with him 
at the end of like towards the end of I think like halfway through my fifth year. And I was like trying so hard to like hold it together because I just felt like so disappointed in myself. And I was like, I think I have to come back for another year. Like, I, I think I have to come back for year six. But I don't know what I was expecting, but, you know, like he just said, like, all right, that's fine. You tell me what you need from me and now I'm here to support you. Um, If you need another year, that's you know perfectly OK. And that was just like such a relief and like such a weight off my shoulders because like, you know, because, you know, this was like self-imposed, right? Like I, no one was telling me I had to get out in five. Like this was all like me. Things happened, you know, like a pandemic happened. Like my mom's health was pretty bad. You know, I had a kid and like all these things just like kind of like it's like my fourth year is just a blur to me. Like I don't even remember my fourth year. I was like, yeah, I need to come back. And he's yeah, fine. Like, you tell me what you need and then I'll support you. And so, you know, just hearing those words is like like just a huge relief. Like, I felt so much better after talking to him, even though like I still felt disappointed in myself. But I was like, you know, I'll get over it. I'll get through it one more year. No one's going to ask me why it took six years to finish the, the program, right? At least I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. <laughs> All right. So we usually open with like very broad questions at the top of the episodes but for this one we decided to do it at the very end so we're about to hit you with like the biggest question that we have what do you wish you were told while you were in the phd program just like period so we already hit on this a little bit but just that you don't have to say yes to every opportunity and in fact it's good if you don't as i kind of hinted to before if you're spread too thin like that's not great for yourself or your mental health or your quality of work, but also for the people working with you. You know, I've been on projects before where other professors are spread so thin and they can't like give me what I needed as a student or like what other people needed. And it's like really apparent that people just say yes to opportunities. And I get it. There's excellent opportunities, but you don't have to say yes to everything. And I know it's, there's an extra layer on that with being a student, but Hopefully you have an advisor that you can talk to and don't let anyone push you into things that you don't want to do. You, grad school's too long. It's too hard to be doing work that you're not passionate about. Just have boundaries, follow what you believe. And obviously, if you are you have a graduate assistantship, you have to put in your hours and work and things like that. But for things outside of that, just put boundaries up and hopefully you have someone that's in your corner that can help you navigate through that. But you don't have to say yes to everything. Yeah, I think that's incredibly appropriate. I really feel that quite deeply. I think, again, like where we started, that it's a roller coaster and it's not always sunshine and rainbows and easy days all the time. Sometimes I feel like I felt like this was going to be <laughs> a glamorous endeavor. And that's not the case. Sometimes it really sucks. Whether, you know, like I said, it's a paper rejection or thinking about low stipends, which is a very real concern and something that you should absolutely consider if you're considering a PhD program, the cost of living and PhD programs sometimes don't offer high stipends. And so you have to prioritize how you're going to live and be strategic in how you're going to live. And that's something that you should absolutely consider when you're going into a PhD program. I think that another thing for me while I was in the PhD program and actually towards the tail end was that you can be selective on the job market. I feel like there's, I kind of touched on, on this before, but there's this like hidden rule, I think that's out there that you have to be thankful for every single opportunity that you know, you could possibly consider on the job market. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that we have the ability to be much more strategic and selective about where we apply and where we want to live. And it's not just saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for every single thing that may come our way. I think we can tailor our life to where we want to live and where we don't want to live. And we're not obligated to do those things. if We don't want to work in those locations. And finding an advising team that supports that, I think is important too. I'm thankful that I did have an advising team that supported that. So you can hopefully tailor the program as much or as little. Hopefully you can tailor the program to your advantage. It may depend on, you know, if you get external funding or things like that, but hopefully you could be strategic. Yeah, all great things. We're just going to wrap up with one final piece of advice for individuals in the middle of grad school who are hoping to thrive instead of survive. What do you have? You can Don't forget to keep living your life outside of your grad program. It's okay to be married, to get married. It's okay to have a kid. It's okay to watch Netflix. It's okay <laughs> to read fiction books. 
don't forget to keep living. You know, like I said, if you can treat it like a job, you have a whole other side of yourself that you can join a kickball team or do all of those other things. I think the other really, really final piece of advice is be nice to folks because everyone's struggling in grad school. Even if they don't seem like they're struggling, everyone's struggling. And these are your colleagues. And if it's offering advice or it's just being there for folks, like people remember how you treat them and how they make you feel. And, you know, someone might be struggling that day. And so just be nice to your colleagues. It'll create a better culture in academia if we're just nice to each other. So even if it seems like a competition, it's not a competition, just be nice. I was just going to say that people want you to succeed and the faculty members are there and they want you to do well. I remember coming to UNO and being so intimidated. I'm like, all these people are doing incredible things. I don't want to waste their time. They want you to succeed. They want you to do well. Don't be afraid to like ask questions. And don't be afraid to help other people succeed as well. Mm-hmm. As Alana was saying, it's not a competition. Like if you know something or you can help someone and it's not stretching yourself too thin, just go ahead and help people, help each other. Absolutely. And I will say, you know, like the whole theme of this episode was thriving, not surviving. But I do feel like every now and then a little surviving is, is not <laughs> appropriate. Yeah. You know, I've, yeah. like I think we've all had moments where like, oof, I just need to get through this. And then you get comps. to the other side and we're like, yeah, comps. <laughs> like, yeah. Oof, I just survive. And then and then you get through the other end and are like, oh, this wasn't so bad. All right. So, you know, a little surviving is not, not so bad. Um, but, you know, hopefully we can all, well, I'm already at the end of it and you guys are finished. But hopefully everyone that's listening to this can use this to help them thrive a little bit more. But thank you both. We appreciate your time so much, you know, coming here and talking to us. Especially uh, in like the first week of new jobs. Right. Second week for Alana, but right at the yeah. beginning. Thank you. Of course. Of course. Is there anything either of you would like to plug? Anything we should be on the lookout for in the future? I don't think so. Right now I'm just pushing through and trying to get everything out. Yeah. I think in the future I'll have the dissertation publications starting to come out. Nothing everything's a little bit too premature right now, but hopefully fingers crossed in the future soon. And where can people find you? Are you on X? formerly Twitter. Yeah, folks can find me. I'm on X. I mostly tweet about my dogs and sports and other things It's like great that, for work-life balance. So yeah. go yeah. check it out. <laughs> yeah, I'll be on I'm that. obsessed with um, Gretchen. Yeah, we have a puppy and her name is Gretchen and she actually went into heat this past weekend. So that was a really nice interruption to my first uh, <laughs> semester of law, law school teaching. Anyway, yeah, she's great. Oh my gosh. And I'm on X as well. I don't remember my name or anything. I just got one. That's um, all right. We'll we'll post it on the on the <laughs> episode description. But all right. Well, thank you both again. We really do appreciate you coming and talking with us. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.